Good evening and welcome to Narrative Medicine Rounds. Uh, my name is Deepu Gowda. I am a general internist here practicing hospitalist medicine. And uh, I'm a faculty member at Columbia, also the director of uh, clinical practice for the program in Narrative Medicine, where our focus is really thinking about how do we take the methods that many of you are engaged with, close reading, observation of art, reflective writing, conversations that are meaningful in groups, how do we take those methods and inform the practice of clinical work? Um, and we've been doing research in this area, and the amazing thing is there is emergent evidence that the things that we are up to at a very scholarly level um, and at a very practical level are showing real impacts in terms of the way teams function, the way that we care for each other and care for ourselves. And I hope that each of you thinks about when, they, when you come to an event like this or doing the work in narrative medicine, that you also think about how you can take this work and apply it to your own clinical practice, to your own workplace. How do you listen carefully? How do you give of yourself in a conversation and in a relationship? Um, and even how do you apply this to non-work relationships, to people that you know at home, uh, at friendships? The, uh, the, the speaker tonight, as you will see, uh, has been doing work that has massive impact on the way we practice medicine and what is possible for us locally as well as nationally. Narrative Medicine Rounds always occurs on the first Wednesday of each month, so I invite you to come back next month as well, on December 6th. Uh, we'll be celebrating the launch of the book, Narrative in Social Work Practice, uh, by our very close friends and colleagues, Ann Burrick Weiss, Lynn Lawrence, and Lynn Mahongas. And I also want to invite you in spring to join us for a workshop on narrative medicine and palliative care. Uh, looking at the intersection of how these two fields really inform each other. And palliative care, maybe more than any other field of medicine, uh, truly in a laser-focused way uh, is attentive to the patient's illness experience and recognizes that illness and disease and health have not only biomedical dimensions but also social, psychological, and narrative dimensions. And, uh, and that's going to be March 23rd and 25th. That's a basic workshop um, with an advanced track, which means if you've already done the basic workshop and you come to that workshop, uh, you'll be able to be uh, in a separate group that has more advanced uh, activities that you'll be uh, deepening your practice and understanding of narrative medicine methods. If you haven't received the invitation yet through the listserv, you will soon. If you're not on the listserv, please reach out to me or Cindy Smollett and we'll make sure to put you on that listserv. Um, at that workshop, we'll be joined by Craig Blunderman, who's the director of palliative care here at Columbia University Medical Center, as well as B.J. Miller, who'll be joining us for that. Uh, the, our speaker this evening will be introduced by Dr. Rita Sharon. Uh, most of you know Rita Sharon. She's a general internist. She's a literary scholar with a PhD in English. She's one of the founders of the field of narrative medicine and one of the founders of our program in narrative medicine with some of our other core faculty. And she's currently the executive director in the program in narrative medicine. Rita. So, thank you. So first I'm going to read 
um, the official biography of Elizabeth Rosenthal, and then I'm going to tell you why she's here. Um, Elizabeth Rosenthal, MD, is the author of the 2017 New York Times bestseller, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business, and How You Can Take It Back. Now, I could stop there. <laughs> she was a reporter and senior writer at New York Times for 22 years, winning numerous awards for her coverage of health and the environment, as well as for foreign coverage in China. Her 2013-2014 series, Paying Till It Hurts, is credited with catalyzing a national conversation on America's high-priced care. And if you're a student here at the Medical School of PNS, you were required to read her series, Paying Till It Hurts, because that is how we taught our students what they need to know um, about what you know also well. Um, she's now, after uh, leaving New York Times, well, in 2016, she decided to leave the Times in order to head up, as editor-in-chief, Kaiser Health News, which is an independent nonprofit newsroom in Washington, D.C., where, and she will tell us a little bit about this, she has a staff of dozens of people to do the work that she all by herself was doing at the Times. So her voice has only been magnified uh, exponentially. Uh, she graduated from Stanford University. She got her MD at Harvard Medical School. Uh, she's worked as an emergency room physician at Cornell. Um, and she is um, a Columbia member. She has taught, okay, now I'm gonna tell you why she's here. She was, so, 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 um, so she came she, she came and had the generosity to teach medical journalism to, PNN, to medical students here for like, what did I pay you? Nothing. And, 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 and this, eminent, this eminent investigative reporter comes and, and teaches a small group, 12, 15, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's, that's the generosity and, the, and the, the, the passion to move these ideas where they need to be. And, and, and we, like I said, we, we, we made our students read you all this time. Uh, you know, you're up there with Harrison's, you know, textbook of internal medicine. Um, but it's very rare, it's very rare that we give someone narrative medicine rounds twice. I don't think we've ever done it. This is her second time here. And that's because what she is able to say and convey and impart to us is so urgently necessary. And it is difficult to get the news from the news. Right? And Libby Rosenthal knows so much. HMS, Stanford, Emergency Room, Wild Cornell, faculty, Columbia. She is steeped in um, mainstream US America and she is at the top of her game as an investigative journalist in the realm of health. And she makes no bones about her orientation vis-a-vis -vis how things are right now. The book is here for sale. You're going to hear it right now from Libby. Well, 
hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming. And um, you know, I, I consider it a privilege to have done all these things because um, writing this book for me, I, I've been a journalist for many years and never written a book because writing a book is hard. You have to be passionate. You have to live with the subject for a, a year. And it was something I could not not write, um, which I think is. Uh, so much of what writing's about, it's having a bee in your bonnet, having something you feel passionate about, whether it's a small encounter or a big medical system that seems out of control, and putting it down on paper and hoping that in putting it down, um, you know, for me, I've always said it gets the bee out of your bonnet a little bit, but hope, you know, hoping to um, change the way things are. So um, I, I'm really... Um, passionate about this topic. It means a lot to me. I often say I could not have written this book until my uh, second child, my younger child, went to college because this is my third child and I really, it was, it was that same kind of drive and engagement that, um, and love that produced this book. So anyway, as you heard from Rita, um, that's a, that was a fabulous introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Um, I did train in medicine. Um, my dad was actually a pediatric hematologist, so I've watched medicine evolve um, for my entire life, and much of it um, in the last 25 years. Very uncomfortably, I've watched it evolve. Uh, and to tell you how this book came about a little bit, uh, before we go into the, some of the, the stories in the book, um, I left the practice of medicine in the 1990s. I'd always loved both medicine and writing, and probably like a number of you in this room, um, was trying to figure out, well, how can I combine these two things? Um, uh, and, and, you know, we all find, figure that out in our own way. Um, I was working in the emergency room at Cornell Weill downtown, which I now guess is Cornell Weill Presbyterian, you know, on and on and on. Um, but, um, uh, and even then, you know, it was in the 1990s, a, a number of the things I was seeing there were not really medical problems, they were health system problems. But for people like me, people who had good insurance, they really weren't they, that affected at that time. The system was working pretty well, but it wasn't working well for, for a lot of the patients I saw in the ER. So um, at some point, um, I don't know, many of you in the room probably aren't old enough to remember this. There was this thing called the uh, Clinton Health Reform. And uh, um, the Times said, you want to come write about that full time? And I said, sure. Um, I went over there really assuming that I'd write about it, that it would pass and I would go back to being a doctor. And of course, um, it didn't. Um, I didn't. And I kind of had caught the the bug of journalism at that point and a few other things. Um, I probably should thank the, the um, American Academy of Emergency Physicians that at that point in time said, if you want to keep working in the ER, you have to get boarded in emergency medicine. I trained in internal medicine, and uh, so life happened and I didn't go back. Um, anyway, but after the Clinton health reform failed, I was overseas for about 10 years doing different kinds of beats. Um, uh, first in China for six years and then covering international environment. Um, and that meant um, I had experience of a lot of different health systems, particularly in those last um, five years where I was covering the environment. I was traveling around Europe a lot um, to look at environmental, energy, uh, environmental innovation, energy efficiency. 
And um, now I'm going to sound really accident prone, huh? um, but um, when I, I, I'm a jogger and I fell in, in uh, Sweden, I broke my wrist, I went uh, through the times, they arranged for me to see the, you know, a, a fancy orthopedist in Stockholm who looked at my wrist, x-rayed it, uh, put it in a cast, and apologized profusely for having to charge me $400 for this whole encounter. So that was experience number one. Um, accident number two came in Rome. Um, I, I sliced open my forehead, and it was Sunday, and I thought, well, where should I go? It's, you know, I have to go to the emergency room, and I knew um, Gemelli Hospital was the Pope's hospital, so I thought, okay, I'll go to the, go to, you know, good enough for him, good enough for me. So um, I went to Gemelli to the ER, and they sewed up my, my forehead, and again, um, you know, profound apologies, and have, but having to charge me 112 euros for the service, um, you know. Uh, and and um, so I'd had those experiences, and when I returned to the U.S. in 2007, and um, some of you may have heard me talk about this before, so apologies, but it was, was a formative experience. Um, I was 50, and I needed that entree into middle age, um, a, a screening colonoscopy. And I knew that medicine had gotten really expensive in the U.S. I'd heard that from my friends, you know, our New York Times insurance policy doesn't cover well anymore. You have to stay in network. There are these deductibles and there are copays. So um, I went to the New York Times uh, uh, HR people and said, how can I get this screening colonoscopy in network? And they gave me a list of places that were in our network. And, um, you know, I saw a place that, that um, I recognized from my training, um, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And uh, I thought, great, you know, screening colonoscopies and cancer center, what could be better? And I was a little confused when I went in for my screening colonoscopy because as a med student, I had seen a colonoscopy done um, in a doctor's office with, you know, very little um, hoopla. But at, at, um, at Sloan Kettering, I was going to the admitting office, I got a wristband, I was, um, you know, they took my clothes, I did got a pre-op physical, I got a bonnet, I got the, the whole shebang, and I was put on a stretcher and wheeled into um, what I knew was basically an operating room at, at Sloan Kettering. Um, you know, there were nurses, there was lots of uh, people in scrubs around, and I was a little confused about, like, wow, you know, what, what's going on here? Um, um, but then I got my push of propofol, and uh, you know I, everything. My worries disappeared. Um, and um, anyway, I, I, you know, I emerged a, an hour later with a clean bill of colon health, and I um, didn't think about it much more. Except about um, a month later, I got my explanation of benefits, and because I'm kind of a health wonk, I look at those, and I saw that. Um, uh, the hospital had billed about $12,000 for my screening colonoscopy. Um, much of that a, a facility fee from, for the NICE OR. Um, and um, my insurer sent me one of those kind of chirpy bills, that, chirpy you know, notes that I think we're all used to seeing now, which said, you know, like, they charged you, the bad guys, right, $12,000. We bargained on your behalf, so we paid $9,000. I was like, great. Um, and, you know, what you owe now is zero, right? So most people would have been really happy 
because of the what you own now is zero and look at those big numbers and think, wow, I really dodged a bullet here. Um, I wasn't happy because I know that in a country that pays you know, $12,000 or $9,000 for screening colonoscopies, we're going to end up with the kind of health system we have now, which is really unsustainable. Um, and I also, um, so now you know why uh, that, that experience, um, when my executive editor said, we really want you to come back, I've been doing international environment, we really want you to come back and do health care, um, I said, well, sure, I'll do that. Uh, it was kind of the Affordable Care Act was brewing, and I said, but you have lots of people covering the Affordable Care Act. What I want to know is why we pay so much. How did it get to be this way? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, after thinking it over, because he had the reaction that I think so many Americans have, which is, oh, everyone knows American medicine is expensive, you know. That's just the way it is. It's like you know, a law of the universe that, um, that we all accept. And, and I, you know, said, no, but I, I want to know why. And he um, nicely and smartly, I would say, gave me the go-ahead to do a, a series that became Pain Till It Hurts. Uh, now you know why the first article is on colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> much to the horror of the New York Times photo department, who <laughs> said, like, how on earth are we going to illustrate that? Um, they, they made a chart, and uh, to this day, tease me about it. Um, but the whole, the whole point of that series was to look at kind of common, ordinary procedures. Because I had read a lot of uh, stories about high-priced healthcare. You know, someone who has needs a million-dollar bone marrow transplant or a, a half-million-dollar medicine. And I think most people react to those stories uh, saying, wow, I hope I don't get that kind of cancer, or that's, that's such an outlier. And what I wanted to do in this series with storytelling is to, um, to tell stories that everyone could relate to, like the colonoscopy, stitch getting stitches in an ER, using an asthma inhaler. It was all the ordinary things, so when people read these stories, they didn't say, oh, that's about you know some really unlucky person out there. That could be me, or that could be my family. Um, so anyway, um, uh, we did that. We tried something rather novel, which is what I spoke about a little bit last time we were here. We, it was kind of the dawn of social media at, at uh, legacy uh, newspapers like the New York Times. So we decided to put little um, questions in the stories and say, have you had an experience with high drug costs? Have you had an experience of facility fees? Tell us about it. Um, we got, uh, in total, uh, close to 20,000 comments, um, many of them amazing stories. If you want a kind of catalog of all the ways in which the U.S. health system fails patients, read through those comments. It's pretty, um, pretty depressing. Um, and um, it gave me a lot of stories to work with. Um, each person in the series was someone who commented on an earlier story. But more than that, when the series ended, when my editors said, like, okay, enough, you know, time to do something different, I was like, no, I have, I have these stories. And I didn't understand still, even though I'd, I'd gone to a certain kind of layer of why the system was so expensive, each of these individual items, or each of these individual encounters, I didn't understand how it got to be that way. And I was a history major. I'd seen medicine when my dad was practicing. I'd seen it when I was 
in training. And I wanted to know how we got to this place that literally, like, nobody seems to like, neither patients nor physicians, nor health economists, you know, even the Republican health economists you talk to say, this market is, you know, is horribly broken. We cannot go on this way. So um, that led to me taking those stories and writing a book, um, uh, which you see here. Um, and I'll tell you some of those stories in a minute. You know, I think um, that doesn't mean that there are a lot of there aren't a lot of good people within the system, um, as you'll hear about in this talk, and as you'll see if you read the book. A lot of my best sources were people in these different parts of this medical industry who felt really uncomfortable about what it had become. Um, people who went in with the best of intentions, including, you know, I, I think there are different... <laughs> You know, there, there are different levels of good guy, bad guy, and different, but there are, there are good guys in every part. So, um, you know, one of the most meaningful conversations I had was with a, a drug rep who um, was involved in the marketing of Factor Eight for hemophilia. I mean, I had seen my, my father, you know, was a practicing when that first came into being, and I know how life-saving it was. Um, she was really disturbed because in the hemophilia factor eight marketing world, people with hemophilia are now referred to as high value patients, right? Um, that's distorted and that's what I wanted to get at and that's where I came away by the end of the book feeling like what had basically happened and why we are where we are today is that slowly while none of us were really paying attention and uh, like bit by bit this system that I'd known and I'd valued as about caring, care, what's good for the patient, um, it, you know, um, treating, healing, had been kind of hijacked by business interests. Um, and that doesn't mean that there can be no, you know, profit in healthcare ever. I mean, that's a political decision, I have my opinion. But um, I think that should never be the, the motivating cause, and I think it is in many cases now. And I'll give you just a little example of that. You know, it's a question of which issue is front burner and which is back burner. And I think right now healing, caring, um, uh, treating for the system as a whole are back burner and profit and profitability are front burner. Slight little example, um, if you go into an orthopedic hospital, which I go to, again, I'm a runner, so I... Uh, I, I, every once in a while, need to see someone about my knee that acts up. Um, I can't see the doctor at this particular hospital without having a scan first. I can't schedule the appointment, okay? Now, what's that about, you know? Um, and P.S., the scans at this particular hospital cost about $4,000, right? Um, you, like, go through the scanner as you walk in the front door, basically. Um, <laughs> If you say you don't want the scan, you become, as I did, you know, the difficult patient, you know, refuses medical advice. Um, and why is that? And it's not because the doctor, my orthopedist, feels like I need a scan each time. He doesn't want that. I don't want it. But there's a system that wants it. And why? A, because it, it's, good, it's a good profit center for the hospital to do all these scans. 
and B, because someone who was probably maybe a consultant or an efficiency person said, you know, it's really inefficient to see a doctor and then go get a scan and then you have So why don't we just do the, the efficient thing and have everyone get a scan right away and then the doctor has all the data. Okay, um, you know, good business, bad medicine. So um, that's what I think we have to, that's why I say, you know, how we can take it back, how we can take it back so that Medicine is the driving force. Um, two words about the ACA before we talk about the book, because it's you know been in the, the, the crosshairs once again. Whatever you think about it, um, it did some really, really important things that I think we will never uh, go back on, I hope, which is that um, you know it gave people with pre-existing conditions uh, the, the right to have affordable coverage, um, or at least some coverage. Uh, it removed lifetime caps. It kind of helped get through in this country the idea this is something we should endeavor to have for everyone, that uh, accessible health care. Oddly, the one thing it didn't do was, and I think this is a classic case of bad branding, was you know the Affordable Care Act. Health care is not affordable to anyone anymore. So it did a lot of great things, but not the, not the, it didn't live up to the brand. And that's what I think the next step is, and that's why, what I want to talk about today. So um, let's go on to the book. This is the book. Um, uh, and at the end of writing the book, I um, tried to kind of get my head around, well, if I was trying to write, what are the economic rules of this market? You know, people, some people like to say, oh, the U.S., we have a uh, market-driven health care. Okay, well, what would the rules be? People got very offended by this list in medicine, I should say, because I said, oh, of course, we don't think that way. And of course, people don't, individuals don't. But these are the kind of rules that make sense if you have profit-driven healthcare. Um, so the one that people most reacted to was a lifetime of treatment is preferable to a cure. You know, none of us who care about medicine would think that. However, um, uh, that's just true if you're a finance person. You know, if I can get someone on treatment for life um, with an expensive drug, why would I want to cure it? And the classic example, there are example of all of these rules in the book, but the classic example of this is a, a woman named Denise Faustman, who's a professor at Harvard, who's been researching using an old immune stimulator to uh, reverse type 1 diabetes. It's worked in mice. Um, she did phase 1 trials in humans that looked promising. I do not know if this is going to work or not. You know, let's put, and she doesn't either. However, when she had her promising initial results, she went to the people who we trust to do trials in this country, namely pharma, right? So she went to the big uh, diabetes uh, drug manufacturers and said, how about funding these trials? And they looked at it and they were like, wow, this is really interesting, but um, you know, if this works, it ruins a $20 billion industry, right? And they, I mean, they weren't quite that explicit about it, but um, there's no, you know, if we trust in profit to bring us drug development, we will get, and to, to trust the, to, to bring us innovation in medicine, we will get things that are profitable, but we may not get things that we need that don't have a business model. And curing some of these chronic diseases is one of them. Um, uh, she now, um, lucky thing for the internet, uh, Dr. Faustman 
is crowdsourcing her, her phase two trial and now has $24 million to do it. So, um, um, you know, there, there are workarounds these days, but it's kind of sad that um, you have to crowdsource stuff like this, to me at least. Um, and you can look at some of the others. This is like the front plate of one of the, the beginning of the book. Um, you know, I think the ultimate rule is the last one, prices will rise to whatever the market will bear, and I think we see that over and over again. So I'm going to, you know, I'm a storyteller. I think the most effective way to convey what's going on in medicine is to tell stories, so I'm going to tell you a few that are in the book. Um, this is uh, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kivy, who's a, a teacher at Stuyvesant High School here in New York. Um, he has psoriatic um, arthritis. He's had it since he was a kid and was on... Uh, uh, high-dose steroids when he was in grad school. He actually worked at um, um, Abbott Labs as a researcher before he became a teacher. Anyone here go to Stuyvesant? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my son actually had Dr. Kivy, but I, I, I wouldn't tell him that because um, my son was not a good chemistry student, so um, he contacted me through social media. Anyway, what happened with Dr. Kivy is um, he uh, was getting his, you know, over the last 15 years, there have been some really great new drugs for some of these autoimmune diseases. There's one called Remicade, which he was on very, very successfully starting about 10 years ago. He got infusions every six weeks. It really controlled his arthritis. He got off steroids for the first time in many years. Um, he could walk up and down, you know, he could stand for his classes. Um, and then something weird happened. Um, his, his rheumatologist, who'd been at Beth Israel downtown, moved her practice up to NYU uh, because she wanted to practice in a different environment. Nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary there. She was doing what made sense. Um, Dr. Kivy's infusions at uh, Beth Israel had been $19,000 a pop, which in the context of today's medicine, we kind of hear and we go, no, okay, that's, that sounds all right, you know. Um, um, but when he went up to uh, NYU, the first one was billed at um, $110,000. You know, same dose, same infusions, same amount of time. I said, well, what was different? And he said, well, there was free Wi-Fi in the room, and there was, you know, there were cookies and juice, but, um, you know, so... So, uh, you know, Dr. Kivy and I, but he, you know, people don't, don't reach out to reporters as their first step. He at first called, called NYU and said, you know, what, what gives? Why, you know? And, you know, he didn't get any satisfactory answers, and then he kind of handed the baton to me to kind of do what reporters do, which is kind of harass people for answers. So uh, um, I did. Um, and I got a lot of non-answers, like, well, he's a big guy, you know, okay. Um, you know, he's, you know... He, he, needs, he needs a high dose of Remicade. Uh, you know, we have a lot of expenses that don't get covered elsewhere, so we have to charge. Um, anyway, you know, Dr. Kivy was an unusual person, but I want all people to be like Dr. Kivy because he had great insurance. He has New York State teacher's insurance. It paid. Uh, Anthem, his insurer, paid $100,000 for this. You know, when, when I, and we'll talk about later why any insurer would pay when they had been paying 19000 and suddenly it drops, but we'll have a surprise answer to that later. Um, but they did pay. He had no out-of-pocket costs, but it just insulted him as a, a human being that this kind of uh, situation was going on. And so um, 
he went on the warpath, uh, calling me also um, somewhat, and this is the kind of situation where you put patients in, this is not in the book because it happened afterwards, he decided that he would not take these Remicade infusions for $100,000. He decided to switch to an injection uh, that he could give himself at home, a different drug. Um, it didn't work as well. Um, he tried it for about a year and tried to get then back on the Remicade, and his insurer then said, uh-uh, it's too expensive. So, but, you know, patients are often caught out in this. Um, this is another example that's in the book. Um, these obviously are not patients. Um, this is, uh, um, I, I heard from a doctor named Dr. Frank McCuller, who was a pediatrician at Providence Medical Center in, uh, in um, Portland, Oregon. Um, he called me just after he retired because he wanted to talk about what he saw at his uh, health center and how disturbed he was by the changes he was seeing. Um, these are the nuns, um, the Sisters of Providence, Sisters of Mercy, who's, who founded Providence Medical Center in the 19th century. Um, and uh, they were from Montreal and, and answered the bishop's plea because the Pacific Northwest didn't have good health care. They moved out there and started this medical center. Um, and Dr. McCuller went there about 40 years ago as a young, uh, newly minted pediatrician and practiced in the outpatient department and ER there for many, many years. And he was really upset by the time he left with what he saw. You know, when he started, he said there were still some sisters, you know, nurses who were nuns working in the emergency room. He said they treated everyone. Um, and that he felt a sense of mission, that he was doing what he, all the things that had drawn him into medicine. He was not a religious person. This just happened to be where he, he landed. He was from Portland originally. Um, but over time, he saw things creep in. And some of the things were things that I'd seen in my practice where, uh, in, in the emergency room, where suddenly there were people walking around with clipboards saying, you know, uh, you know, how many, how long did you spend with that patient? Um, he was having to take classes in billing, like how you can bill for a level four visit instead of a level three visit, what you have to do, where you'll get in legal trouble for um, billing level five rather than uh, level four. Um, he started, the, the, the doctors who worked at the hospital started getting report cards. And what were the, were the report cards about? It was how many RVUs they built compared to their, their, um, their colleagues. And then when the report cards weren't enough, they, their salaries started changing. If you build more RVUs, you got more salary. And that added yet another level of incentives that made him really uncomfortable. Um, and then at some point, the, there were patient satisfaction scores, which became very important. And that's not to say that patient satisfaction isn't important. But he said that the doctors were all sent to charm, what he called charm school, and then billing school. And, um, and then the thing that bothered him most in many ways was the construction, as they were being told, you know, uh, okay, that patient has come in, but with Mtala, you got to treat them, but try and get them, you know, refer them to to someplace else. Um, and as that was happening, he was also seeing this kind of crazy building craze going on in the hospital. So he said, um, by the time he left Providence, 
um, it looked like the Providence Marriott. And he said there were, you know, fountains in every pavilion with salmons jumping around. And he, he no longer felt good about what he did. Um, and that made him sad. This is Providence uh, St. Vincent's Medical Center today. Um, you know, uh, it talks about on its website things like guest services, restaurants, spa, you know, so um, I, I urge you, um, and I can send out something, um, we did a, a, a little quiz at the New York Times, I can send out the links to everyone who's on the list or called, is this a hospital or a hotel? It's 10 photographs, you choose, and um, um, you know, y you'll see how many you get right or wrong. I, and I say to, this to hospitals with, with love in some ways because we are not building the system, the, the things that people need, and we're not building, you know, every place I go giving talks, there's a new wing. Someone wants to show me the new wing and the, you know, the, the, the 10,000 hand-painted tiles of, of endangered species. And I'm like, yeah, that's really beautiful, and I don't want to dismiss that as irrelevant, but unless we're doing the core of things that we know is most important to patients, sure, you can make patients you know, feel good. You can say, oh, yeah, I, you know, the thing that makes me nuts is when patient, people, my friends say to me, oh, I love that hospital. There's free coffee in the lobby. I'm like, uh-uh, <laughs> you know, let's, let's talk about what matters. Um, so here's something um, that uh, another former uh, classmate and a residency colleague um, sent to me that he found, and this is like all the people in the system who are so uncomfortable now. Um, this is my, from Michael Canning, a general surgeon in Miami now. He found in one of his drawers the pledge he took when he um, was inducted into the uh, American College of Surgeons in 1990. Um, I want to read you a line. It says, I will set my fees commensurate with the services rendered. Uh, and he said, wow, I don't know who could say that anymore. Um, and he's not setting the fees often. His hospital is setting the fees. So anyway, I went to look at the um, current pledge of the, uh, both the American College of Surgeons and the American Medical Association. These pesky clauses are gone. Uh, they were taken out in about 2004. So here's the kind of thing we're up against. Um, Again, you know, good guys in every field, but also people who take advantage of the incentives. Um, uh, this is a story about, that comes from someone uh, by the name of Barbara Bennion who needed cataract surgery in Connecticut. Um, she went to an ophthalmologist, uh, and the ophthalmologist said to her, to her surprise, sure, we'll fix your cataracts, but um, I want to talk to you about some upgrades. Um, and she was like, you know, like going to business class or what, what is an upgrade? So, you know, looking into the history of this, uh, and I, uh, cataracts were great business for ophthalmologists, um, but uh, surgical fees for Medicare are scaled according to how much time procedures take. Cataract surgery is much more efficient than it was, so the payments for cataract surgery have gone way, way down. So. You know, you can either accept that or you can try and make it up. And uh, there have been several ways that physicians um, who wanted to tried to make it up. Um, the first one, of course, there was uh, LASIK surgery, which worked for a while until most people who wanted it had already gotten it. Um, and then there were these upgrades. Now, uh, Medicare pays, uh, I think, about $1,500 now for a cataract. 
Um, the two upgrades that, that Barbara Benian was offered, one was something called a toric lens, which um, I, I've asked about to numerous people. It, um, I think that can be quite useful for some people. It corrects astigmatism, as I understand it. So you get the cataract done, and instead of having to wear glasses, you, you, um, you get a toric lens. Um, she was offered that for uh, $2,000 an eye extra, the upgrade, so more than the price of the surgery. The second thing she was offered, um, which I've learned is not generally so um, useful is something called uh, laser surgery, right? Sounds cool. Um, we're not going to use those old-fashioned scal scalpels. We're going to do a laser incision. Um, the price of that was, was an extra $2,500 an eye. Um, you know, basically, uh, she was lucky. Her, her son-in-law is an ophthalmologist and said, don't do it. You don't need it. There's no difference. For most people, like many things in medicine, these, these lasers in rare cases can be useful, but they're used far more widely and offered as upgrades to people who don't really know if they're better or not. And, you know, uh, Ms. Bennion said to me, well, you know, I asked the doctor which was, what was the best? And he said, well, the best is both upgrades, but the second upgrade was, uh, would have doubled the price of her surgery all out of pocket and, uh, and would have been not good for her. Now, you might ask, because um, when, when these lasers first came into practice, they cost half a million dollars for the machine, and, and the word among the ophthalmology community was there would never be any market because you know you couldn't support buying this kind of machine for office practice or for surgery center practice. Well, what happened is the people who make these machines got get really clever over time, and they created portable machines which they will deliver to offices for rental for half a day, and you can um, pay for them. Every time the surgeon hits the laser, they're, they're, they generate a click fee. And these machines now come not just with advice about how to use them, where they're useful medically, but again, and here we have this business world that's dominating our care, um, pamphlets about how to make sure you, you recoup, you get your return on investment. You know, virtually every machine in medicine now comes with advice about return on investment, how many times you have to use it, how much you have to charge to get back your, your investment, and uh, that, I don't think that's a good way to think about medicine. Um, I want to go quickly because I know we're, we're um, I want to leave time for Q&A. Um, has anyone used Duexis, been prescribed Duexis? Um, Good, <laughs> good. I heard about this from a guy who's a, 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 an accountant for the city of uh, Dallas who'd been prescribed Duexis. Um, Duexis is um, a drug, <laughs> um, patented drug, fairly new, new, recently patented. Um, it is a combination of ibuprofen and uh, famotidine, you know, so Motrin and Pepsid, um, um, or Advil and Pepsid. Um, I tried to figure out, it's, it's a higher dose, it's a prescription drug dose of ibuprofen, so 800 milligrams, of course it's going to upset your stomach if you take that, so you have some Pepsid mixed in and it'll be a much better medicine. So I tried to figure out, like, well, what would it cost me if I went to a drugstore and just bought the components of Duexis? So um, there you go. Um, both are off patent. Uh, both can be bought over the counter. Um, you know, I calculate I could get a one-month supply of ibuprofen, uh, 
uh, for $5, one month of uh, famotidine for $6, so $11 I could do it yourself, um, uh, do excess at home. But do excess with a free coupon costs $2,319 a month. Okay. So, you know, people ask, and this is why I like talking to, to medical, you know, why would any, I mean, this is a successful drug. This company is making money off this drug. So why would any doctor prescribe it? And I think this is the, if I, if I could say to doctors one thing to do, is when the detailed person comes in and says, you know, there's this great new drug, or you see a drug that, you know, it, your, your patient won't have to take Pepsid, or they won't get an upset stomach, you know, you just prescribe this, as uh, this, this guy from Dallas, his doctor, had done. Um, ask, how much is it going to cost? What are you going to charge for this? And I think we never ask that question. You know, we don't put it in ads when we see these ads on TV. When people come around, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, promoting drugs, no one says, "Give us a ballpark." Give it, so you know, this isn't a crazy amount to pay for this drug. There, I'm not supposed to be editorial, but I don't think. Um, how many of you have seen the ads for, I think one of the other, other policy issues we have to think about is drug advertising. How many of you have seen the ads for Non24 and wondered what's that? Um, if you watch CNN, you'll see a lot of them. Um, it's a, as it says, a circadian rhythm disorder. And you might not be surprised that these are disease awareness ads for a drug called Hetlioz. Now, Non24 is a... Um, it's a drug that treats uh, a circadian rhythm disorder that's experienced um, almost pretty exclusively by people who are totally blind. Maximum of about 70,000 people in this country have uh, non-24. Um, it is, um, uh, what is, what is Hetlioz, the drug that treats non-24? Um, it's a melatonin analog, okay? It, it's uh, um, not, something earth-shattering, um, it's, 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 it's a, a modified melatonin. Now, the thing about non-24 is because it was a drug that was applied for to treat a small number of people, it went through the orphan drug process, which meant it only had to have a trial of about six months. Uh, the trial only involved about uh, 60 people who were totally blind, who had experienced uh, sleep-wake disorders. And the thing about the trial is it didn't actually work very well, even in that, you know. It increased the amount of sleep from about, on the worst nights, three and a half hours to four hours. And yet, when it went before the FDA approval panel, and this is where I heard about it because I noticed that on the FDA approval panel, when I read the minutes, people were really uncomfortable with this. They were really uncomfortable. Um, and one of the people on the panel was a guy named Dr. Robert Sack, who, um, in the 1990s first described non-24 and first said that melatonin dosed at the right time could probably treat it. He did some groundbreaking studies on that. Um, and here he was uh, 25 years later looking at this drug company, Vanda, that was bringing this drug, um, uh, non uh, Hetlioz, to market. Um, uh, the, the, the word in the drug industry was this would never work. Uh, one of the headlines was Vanda's sleep disorder drug is a nightmare, but it wasn't. And it wasn't because um, 
what are our metrics for, for approving new drugs? It's safe and effective, right? And the panel, as much as they felt uncomfortable with this drug, you saw them ask questions like, why don't you just tell, tell people to take um, melatonin? Um, you know, and the answers would be, well, you know, that you're being heartless, this is a serious disease, um, you know. Uh, and four hours versus three and a half hours, that's not really very good. And they would say, well, that doesn't matter because the metric is safe and effective. And of course it was safe because it's melatonin. And it was effective because there was that extra half hour. So again, policy um, issue that I think we all need to deal with. Safe and effective is probably not the, the metric for new patents in this country. It shouldn't be. Um, uh, and uh, Hetlias was never compared to melatonin. And Hetlias, when it came to market, cost $8,000 a month. Okay. And again, when things are priced that way, you don't have to sell a lot of prescriptions to, uh, to make good. Now, what's the end game for this company? Um, they're now doing phase two trials for uh, using Hetlias um, on jet lag. So maybe they're hoping that people who will pay $10,000 for a first class seat will pay you know, $500 for a, a sleep aid. I don't know. Um, uh, quickly, um, uh, this is uh, a woman named Wanda Wickeser, who was in the book, who came to me. Um, she was uninsured because she had the unfortunate experience of having a subarachnoid bleed um, eight days before the Affordable Care Act came into play. Um, she was uh, medevaced from her home in Norfolk, Virginia, to uh, University of Virginia Medical Center, where she had her aneurysm clipped, spent a couple of weeks in the ICU, and recovered pretty much fully. Um, so she was, as most people I speak to, grateful for the advances in care and the care they get. Um, but uh, she was first surprised by the medevac flight, which was billed at um, $45,000. And she, Wanda is a very resourceful person, so she went on, you know, she called, she uh, negotiated that down to, to, uh, to $15,000 um, and paid that out of a retirement account. She had about $100,000 left in a retirement account. And she said to uh, the University of Virginia, this is everything I have, I'll give you this. And she was resourceful enough to look at what Medicare would have paid for that surgery, which was uh, in about $78,000. Um, and basically, the University of Virginia Medical Center said, no, you know, a bill is a bill. And, uh, you owe us $356,000. That's our bill charges, you know, the charge master rate. Um, was she eligible? Hospitals always say, oh yeah, we have programs for people who can't afford it. Um, the only people at that hospital were, who, who were eligible were, oh, they gave her a discount, so they said $285,000 in the end. Um, they wouldn't take her $100,000 and eventually tried to take her um, apartment and took her to court. Um, and I do not know, frankly, what happened in the end because the week before um, she went to court, I called the University of Virginia and said, I want to come to the trial. And suddenly it was settled um, with a non-disclosure agreement. But, um, and she is now insured. Um, she never meant, you know, she never wanted to be uninsured. She never did. She um, actually had quit a job so her kids can get on Medicaid and then applied for ACA insurance. But. Uh, her timing was off. Uh, last thing I want to talk about before we talk about quickly about some solutions is um, 
this was a story that appeared in the New York Times that I didn't do, but there's a, a chapter in the book um, about ambulance rides, because this is, to me, was the most shocking part of my research in the book, um, was getting a call from uh, someone named Kathleen Williams who uh, got in a minor bike crash in the suburbs of Cincinnati. Um, an ambulance turned up, as often happens, right? Now, it wasn't a bad bike crash. She said she could have called her husband, but the ambulance came and said, do you want us to take you to the hospital? She ended up having a fractured wrist. Um, and she said, sure. Uh, she got there, and then uh, a month later, got a bill from the ambulance company. And it was a, you know, it was a local fire department ambulance company that was uh, $1,000. And she said, oh, this must be a mistake. You know, this is the fire department. Um, I have great insurance. She had like the best PPO plan in, uh, in Cincinnati. Um, it was a Humana plan. And anyway, um, the, the ambulance company said, oh no, we don't participate in insurance, right? Um, and this was a real re revelation to me because, um, you know, fire departments put out uh, fires for free, but their ambulance departments, even city ambulance departments, are money makers for, for cities. And they build, they started out as all volunteer. I traced through the history of that. You know, they started out as volunteer. Then when insurance comes in, they say, well, you know, some people have insurance, so we might as well bill insurance. And then in a thing, in a, in a, in a step that I think we've seen in every part of healthcare, there's kind of an outsourcing of the business side, the billing side to people who are just business people. They're not healthcare people. And for them, a bill is a bill is a bill. And hey, you know, if we can bill insurance, why not? And if someone doesn't have insurance, why don't we bill them too? And then what happens with ambulances, as with so much of our, uh, so many of our, what we now call surprise medical bills, is the ambulance service and, or the other provider and the insurers can't agree on a reasonable price. So they don't have any contract, right? And um, they go out of network. And who gets stuck holding the bag? It's the patient. Um, so in this case, Ms. Williams, again, a, a strategy that most people wouldn't be um, feel able to employ, but she did. She said she tried to bargain them down. They said, no, you know, a bill is a bill is a bill. You owe us the $1,000. Um, but by law in Ohio, they have to offer a payment plan. So um, she set up a payment plan where um, she's paying $5 a month, essentially, for the rest of her life. And she said it was the only thing I could do to protest. But, um, you know, there's a lot to be done. So this is what we're up against. So I want to give you, throw out some ideas of what we can do, because I think there's lots we can do. I think everyone has power and could do more. I think some of the way we got to this um, really disturbing place is because A, we weren't looking when most of us had good insurance that covered everything and premiums and deductibles. Premiums were paid by our insurers, our, our employers if we were lucky enough to have uh, uh, employer-based insurance and deductibles were low, co-payments were low. Um, so we didn't look, we didn't pay attention as these prices were spiraling out of control. We didn't pay attention to those explanation of benefits as long as it said what you owe now is zero. But now, um, I hope everyone will start paying attention because we're at an unsustainable place. And also because a lot of us have high deductible plans, so it will be coming out of your pocket. So there's a lot we can do. Um, and I'm going to just go through some ideas. They're, they're, they're gone. I go into them in much more detail in the book. But um, 
And a lot of them are big asks. They're big asks for doctors, they're big asks for patients, but I think unless we send signals that what's going on now is not okay, it will never turn the ship around. Um, I tell patients, and I'm one too, and I do this with my doctor, I practice what I preach on this one, um, engage with your, your engage with your doctor on value. I love my doctor. He's someone I knew in training at Cornell. But he has probably no idea of what anything he orders costs. Or he didn't until I started asking questions. Um, so, I, you know, we, in, when I was training, um, and when I worked in the ER, gosh, how many times did I say, why don't we just order this test? You know, why don't we just get it? And I want, you know, I, I tell people, when you hear your doctor say, why don't we just, you know, the red flags should go up. Ask why. How is it going to change? You know, it's that classic, my back hurts, why don't we just get an x-ray? Wrong thing to do medically. We know that. We all know that. And yet we do it. Um, how will it change care? Um, particularly in an age of uh, labs where we just you know, on a computer, tick off a whole bunch of boxes, and hey, a lot of these programs are set up to encourage billing and to maximize billing, so you just click one box and they all autofill below. Um, when I was a, a resident, we had a, you know, WNL stands for within normal limits. We used to joke, um, it sometimes stood for we never looked. And all of those tests that are we never looked tests, we should not do anymore because they're billing constructs. Um, um, so one of the things I do, just little ideas, um, um, and, and you know, uh, Cornell probably doesn't like this, um, but when, I, when my doctor says, oh, you need a blood test, when we've decided that I really need the blood test, um, and he doesn't order a lot of blood tests, but I, I fill, have him fill out a requisition. I go to LabCorp or Quest or one of the commercial labs because his computer is now programmed to order that lab test from uh, Cornell, New York Hospital, where many tests will be literally, uh, you know, 50 times what they are at the commercial labs. There's one patient, um, I'll, I'll briefly, you know, you'll see in one of the later slides. She had the misfortune to um, have a doctor for a pre-op physical order of vitamin D level. Like, why? Who knows? She'd actually had another one before um, at a commercial lab that had cost about $7. Um, her surgery was at Albany Medical Center, which happens to be the highest priced lab for um, vitamin D tests in New York State, and it was $717. So um, that's the kind of variation we see, which is why you should always think about which is the low cost provider. Uh, likewise, you know, in lab tests, we all know, you just put them in the, there, there's not a lot of, uh, it's not like looking at a complicated pathology slide, it's, uh, it's automated. Um, likewise, when my doctor says, you know, we should get an x-ray of your knee. I, I want him to know um, which are the, you know, there are 20 different centers within a mile of his office that I could go to. I want him to know which ones charge a reasonable amount, which are the low-cost providers that provide good service, you know, that provide a good reading. Because, and I want him to say to the guy who's charging $1,000 for that same x-ray, 
I'm not going to send my patients to you anymore because you're ripping them off, and they're paying for this now. Um, I would like us all to make healthcare part of our politics, which we haven't done. You know, unfortunately, in DC, the the politics of healthcare have all been repeal and replace, repeal and replace, and you know we know how that's going. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of health politics that's local, that it's the state level. I don't think we've held our insurance commissioners accountable enough. Um, this is about uh, you know. I want people, and a lot of insurance commissioners are elected. You can vote on these people, but you know it's a down ballot issue. Most people have no idea what they stand for or what they do. They do things like making sure plans have an adequate network, which many many plans don't because that's not defined. Um, my being my bonnet is the inaccuracy of directories, provider directories. I sign up for an insurance plan based on what's in that directory. So it should have to be accurate, not just, um, not just you know, oh, we'll update it at the end of the year. It should be accurate to the day that computers can do that. And I don't like this, you know, in-network but not accepting new patients because that doesn't mean anything to me. And I also buy insurance for a year, so I would like insurance commissioners to say, um, you know, you can't have this. I've heard from so many patients who, you know, are being treated for something like breast cancer and the hospital at, drops out of the network mid-year. I mean, that should not be allowed. I mean, we sign contracts with our insurers, and those should be stable for the course of our insurance. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Get on your insurance commissioner to make that happen. Likewise, at the hospital, and I know this is going to be uncomfortable for some hospitals, um, I would like physicians to ask to see charge masters, to ask to see the master price list, because I think, you know, is, is, is transparency an answer? No, but it's a first step. I think if Sloan Kettering had to show its doctors, I'm sure the doctor who ordered my colonoscopy there, if he had known that Sloan Kettering was charging $12,000, he would have said, oh, I, I can send you someplace cheaper, you know. But I, so I think, Transparency just is a good first step. I think a lot of hospitals wouldn't charge what they do if they knew those prices were out there in the world. And um, so um, we should ask for that. Likewise, with surprise bills, um, I, I think uh, if I go to an in-network hospital, I feel like it should be the hospital's responsibility to make sure everyone who touches me is in-network. I don't know which of their anesthesiologists take Cigna or don't, but they do. So if I'm having surgery and you know I have Cigna insurance, pair me up with people in network. Um, I think it's what we should all be demanding. New York now has a pretty good surprise billing law, which means that patients, if they know about the law, uh, don't get stuck with those bills, but you have to know about the law and then you have to fill out a lot of forms and triplicate. Um, it should be the hospital's responsibility, I think. Um, this, we've, we've seen what I asked doctors to do, um, the why don't we just test. Um, if you see something, say something. <laughs> you know, we usually use this in a different context, but um, in terms of whether you want to write your own story, whether you want to contact a reporter, this is uh, Dr. Barry Lindenberg and his patient, Antoinette Newell. Um, uh, Dr. Lindenberg, uh, Ms. Newell had been on digoxin for many, many years. Uh, and suddenly, the price of digoxin about two years ago rose by about 100%. Uh, still not a lot. Um, and Dr. Dr. Lindenberg, because when a drug spikes in price, what do insurers do? They ask for 
uh, pre-certification. So he got sent a form saying for pre-cert, and he, he wrote on it. Um, he faxed it back with the words, you've got to be kidding me on it. Um, but, and, and I looked into what had happened. What had happened is, you know, we, we always traditionally thought of generics as cheap. Um, now we find that uh, a number of generic drug makers, uh, if there are only two or three in the market, they realize they can just test the waters and raise the price and see what happens. And Martin Shkreli isn't the only person who's done this. It's happening all the time. He was just particularly brazen about it. Most of them are very quiet. So I think you know when we say, oh, we have a competitive market, two or three uh, drug makers making a drug, two or three device makers making hip and knee implants does not make for competition in this country. And I think um, the FTC and the DOJ are probably going to have to get much more active in what we mean by competition. Um, and last of all, don't trust that insurers and employers will be the cops. Most of us, I hear so many times from patients, uh, you know, the, my insurer's in my corner. And I'm like, no, they are pass-throughs. They collect premiums. Uh, they pay out uh, bills. And um, as one insurance guy said to me, they're too big to care about you. Which is true, you know, and fair enough. They're, they are. We have allowed in this country them to be for profit, first responsible to their shareholders. So why did they pay ten thousand or nine thousand for my colonoscopy, or a hundred thousand for Jeffrey Kivy's Remicade, or a, another one that was in the New York Times, one hundred seventeen thousand for an assistant surgeon? Uh, when I called them and said, like, why would you pay these bills? Their answer was, and again. It makes total legal sense, they're right. We don't have a contract with these doctors, they're out of our network. To find out what really happened, we would have to send investigators in to see what happened in the OR. You know, was there something unusual? Then we'd have to take the guy to court. It's easier to just write the check. And the last thing they said to me was, you're not gonna write about this, are you? Because then other people will know, other surgeons will know they can do this too. And again, it's the outliers who do it, but, um, it gives everyone a bad name. Um, you know, we can, we'll talk, let, I want to open this up to question. These are some ideas for employers, but um, there's a lot that can be done to make this system better, and uh, some of them we've talked about. And I think we're ready for change because um, we're all seeing higher deductibles. People are feeling these costs now in a way they never did. Um, we're seeing now, and again, I look to the states because nothing very much is happening in Washington. Um, we see states now coming through with surprise billing laws, with drug pricing laws. Maryland, California, um, both have passed uh, laws regulating, in, in Maryland's case, generic drug price rises in California's. They're requiring all drug makers to, um, to uh, get state review be if for prices that increase more than 16% every two years. I mean, these are great starts, but I would like to remind you all that um, if prices go up 16% every two years, we're in unaffordable territory really, really quickly. So these are good steps. Um, I hope this will be something like, uh, you know, gay marriage, which started state by state and coalesced so that it became a, a kind of national norm. Thank you, everyone, um, and let's talk. <laughs>
<laughs> you point out in your book that, which I read the last two days. To uh, <laughs> Thank you. You point out in your book that no other country has this problem because yeah. they administer prices. And you want to say something about <laughs> how about the U.S. administering prices, not letting them be whatever the market will bear? Uh, sure. I mean, when you look around the world, uh, other countries have found dis different solutions to the price problem. Um, no one lets the market decide. Um, so, you know, you can, and, and as a journalist, I, I, I'm, I have to remain agnostic about which solution we adopt, but um, certainly if you have a single-payer system, you don't have to administer prices because there's national bargaining, and that sets the price. Other countries which have market-based systems have nonetheless said, we're going to do national negotiation for things like drugs, hips and knees, what a colonoscopy should cost. And they have either price setting, or like Belgium, or price corridors that are considered, you know, you can compete within this uh, price range, and it's very effective. Now, you know, when people in, in, in the medical industry kind of say, well, or, you know, a, a number of physician friends of mine get very worked up, you know, we don't want people telling us what to charge, you know, Medicare does that already and we don't like it. Um, I say two things. In, in many countries like Japan, those standard prices are set up through a national negotiation between insurers, physician groups, and policymakers. So the same kind of um, negotiation that we do, uh, you know, a hundred million times every week on an individual basis. You know, my insurer negotiates with my hospital, your insurer negotiates with. So it's a kind of national consensus that includes what physicians think their their worth is worth and what hospitals think their worth is work is worth. So it's not imposed from above. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, you know. One model, of course, is uh, should we be adopting some kind of Medicare pricing? Uh, more and more physicians I hear from are so fed up with the negotiating and the paperwork and the bureaucracy and the crazy price variation of our system that, that they say, okay, let's just, let's just do Medicare. I, I, that's okay with me. Um, most More the primary care people than the specialists, but I'm hearing this from a lot of general surgeons, you know, I, so... I, I have not seen a country successfully negotiate prices by just letting the market do it. Um, I don't think that works because, uh, you know, you don't shop for health. And I think, I still think transparency is useful because whether it's me bargaining individually or my employer bargaining or the nation bargaining, at least we reach a consensus on a price. And one of the craziest things you see when you look at um, the pricing for procedures or drugs in different countries versus the US, in other countries, there is generally a price. And in the US, it will vary you know, between $1 and $10,000 for the exact same thing. So I think it's in our future in some form. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for your years of investigative journalism and for raising huh? the awareness of our effed up healthcare system. <laughs> thank you. Um, and to use a medical metaphor, um, I think your diagnosis is absolutely correct. Mm. It's a problem of profits. Right. But I think the treatment plan, I'm not sure, gets to that. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, I think what you were suggesting, and, and, and I don't know if you probably saw Jerome Grubman's piece on yep. doing your book. Yep. I mean, similarly, I feel, I feel a similar way. There's something about that makes me feel a little uneasy. Yep. That is to say, bringing our day-to-day -day patient interactions in the healthcare system down to a, a, a sort of a, an economic calculus, and to be aware of that um, day, to, day after day, for me to be cognizant of all the variations of lab testing and, and so forth, um, I think it's going to erode something that's really critical in the doctor-patient relationship. And I just was wondering if you could speak to that. And, and then secondly, his, his suggestion at the end of that is, is, is to think about if we, if we do think that Medicare has something that's doing right, mm -hmm. and I would argue that it does, mm -hmm. um, why not let them why not let Medicare compete with the health insurance yep. and see who really wins at the end of the day? Well, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, as I, I, I guess I'm, I'm copping out a little bit because I want to remain a journalist and not say, you know, um, what he points out, which is, of course, that that would work, and at some level, this is a political decision, and the 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 easier answer is certainly to do something like that, you know, instead of these kind of somersaults to to bring pricing under control. Um, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton at the end of the campaign last year said, "Why don't we reduce the um, the Medicare age?" Uh, or allow Medicare buy-in, or allow people with chronic diseases to participate in Medicare. There's another idea, as we do for people with end-stage renal disease. Um, you know, all of those things are doable. They're political decisions, right? And and they they make sense. They would work. You know, I joke when people say, "Oh, you know, single." And I I'm not. And I know people are not happy that I that I don't come down on one side or the other. I'm not saying that single payer is the only, is, you know, in our future. But um, I think there is a kind of fear factor with those words in this country. So if we do someday have a single payer system, I think it will happen because we lower the Medicare age and let people buy into Medicare and then suddenly we look around and we keep lowering the Medicare age and we go, oh, you know, wait a second, we have a single payer system. How did that happen? So there's, you know, sure, and I think Medicare has its problems, everyone knows that, you know, it, it, some of them are, are these pricing problems that it pays for all these things that we know are pointless <laughs> because patients like them, and, and, you know, I put part of the responsibility for all of this stuff on patients who've been groomed in many ways to have, want medicine to look a certain way, to involve an intervention or a test or a, you know, my mom goes to the doctor and she says, oh, I, you know, I had a good visit with, the, with, with her, but um, she didn't even take any blood, you know. It's this kind of, we want something done. And part of why we want something done is we're often paying 500 bucks for the visit. We don't want to be told, you know, let's see what happens in four weeks and come back and you pay another 500 bucks. So, yes, that's eminently sensible. Do I think it's necessarily toxic to bring this into um, the exam room? I think, unfortunately, where we are is that patients are all worried about it. You know, they're all thinking, what is this going to cost me? Um, and scared to interact with the system because there's no, there's no answer for that. And so I think... 
to open up that discussion. Not again, it's a kind of front burner, back burner issue until we have a better solution that's political and it may happen first at a state level. Um, you know, I think patients want to know and I think that's why it shouldn't have to be the discussion, it should just be there. You know, they should be able to look it up. I should know, I shouldn't have to find out that Albany Medical Center is charging $717 for a vitamin D test when I get the bill. I, I you know, so I, I guess what I want is doctors to open up that conversation, not partly because I think in the long run that kind of transparency um, just becomes part of the the background, not in the foreground. I mean, in, in France, there are prices on doctors' walls. No one kind of says, oh, that means I won't get something. In Australia, um, it's considered when you're admitted to a hospital, the, the admitting physician gives you a binding estimate of what your charges will be. Um, that's hard to do, if not impossible, because it's also crazily obscure in the U.S. I have you know, residents who've read the book who call me and say, well, I went to my hospital because I wanted to know how much is this echo I'm, I'm ordering or doing, and they won't tell me. You know, that kind, of, that kind of secrecy is how the prices got so crazy. So I think just kind of normalizing the discussion for now, it's not my end goal, I, I, it's not my optimal choice, but I'm, I'm, I kind of... Um, take a backseat to the political decisions and hope this will drive us towards something more sane. with a small b and business with a big business with a small b versus industry right that's how i see the difference like my dad when he was practicing and now i'm going to sound somewhat dinosaur like cuz he you know there what a lot of his patients didn't have insurance these kids and so you know we sent out bills and there it was a business but we also got a lot of you know chocolates and booze at each christmas from people who didn't pay or couldn't pay um, but I think now what's happened, there's, and, 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 you know, and a lot of physicians, I think, like that kind of small business being able to run their own show. Um, but I think what's happened since the 90s and, and really in the 2000s is, we're talking not business with the small b, but consultants, um, you know, McKenzie, one of the, the most interesting calls I got in the course of doing the book and um, she's in the book too, was a, a, a young woman who out of college started working for Deloitte and they were called into uh, a hospital in New York, not this one or the one I trained at, um, to, um, to go over their books. And they did, you know, Deloitte did and McKinsey does what, um, 
you know, what they do for a chicken processing plant or a, you know, a company making jet engines. They say, how could you make, you know, how can you be more efficient? And what does efficiency mean? Um, yeah, at first it means, you know, one supplier for all your laundry or, you know, uh, um, you know, not keeping people an extra day. But at some point when she came in, basically what they were doing is advising this hospital not to do anything different than the, what they were doing, but how to bill a lot more for it. So, hey, you know, why are you, you know, you put people in the recovery room, you know, that's, you could bill for that. And not only could you bill for it, you could bill by the minute. So, you could, you know, so they come in and add this pure business um, view of, of healthcare that looks at healthcare as just kind of a machine that you can optimize for money. And they did, you know, they even did kind of teaser projects like showing hospitals how you could move up in the US news rankings by, you know, what what things you had to do well at, what you could ignore. And I think, and she, she left the consulting world, um, uh, which is why, you know, she, she felt okay about calling me. Um, and was very disturbed by the whole thing because she said, you know, it's legal, um, actuarially it, it works, you know, you can turn around hospitals just by billing differently. And that's, I think, what, what's happened in a lot of medicine. And that's where I see the problem. There's, um, you know, business with a small b and industry, which is, I think, where we are now. Also, there's a lot more... Um, you know, and this again is a political decision how much we want to involve this. Uh, a lot more that's for profit. Insurers were not for profit initially, right? They weren't. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield was uh, not for profit until the 90s. Um, we've allowed uh, profit into healthcare. Um, you know, when people talk about competitive markets for healthcare, Germany has a hundred more than 100 insurers called sickness funds, but they all have to be not-for-profit, you know? So I think um, that's something that distinguishes our business from what happened before. Um, you know, I think also, and again, this does not make me popular with hospitals, um, uh, about three-quarters of the hospitals in this country are not-for-profit, right? Don't pay taxes. Um, are they earning that tax break? Um, it's a good question that I think everyone, you know, I encourage everyone to look at their 990 tax form of their local nonprofit hospital and see what they're doing. To, um, I, a lot of the studies recently suggest that many hospitals don't do enough to earn that tax break and maybe they should just pay taxes and then we'd have that money to use for healthcare. Or maybe we should go to our local hospital as physicians and as patients and say, you know, do it, do your community service. Um, uh, but that hasn't happened a lot. There's only one, I, I, I was in touch with one, one little town in New Jersey that successfully sued its nonprofit hospital to pay taxes, um, where the judge looked at the hospital and looked at what it did. And, you know, he wasn't a healthcare person, so he wasn't familiar with this world of nonprofit hospitals and said, you know, Wait, this isn't this isn't a nonprofit. This isn't a charity. You know, this is a business. And you know, as someone said to me, you know, um, Apple gives away some computers to schools and in underdeveloped countries. But 
no one says they're they're a chair nonprofit for doing it. They pay taxes. So I think we have to reevaluate what what you know how we think of profit and not for profit in healthcare. How are you doing on time? I'm good. You know, the one other thing I would say, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, um, there w there was an attempt to return to nonprofit insurers, the cooperative insurers. Um, they would have been a great idea. I think I would have joined one because um, I, I like the idea of not-for-profit uh, insurance. Um, they were terribly underfunded by the Republican Congress, and most of them have gone belly up in the last uh, two years, sadly. But it could be revived. Let's take a couple more questions. Uh, thank you. Sure. Um, I, so I kind of have two questions. Um, I'll say one of them quickly. So the first one is, you know, in the country at large, the amount of unhealthy habits that are available yeah. to us, you know, the amount of participating in it is changing who's paying really the solution to um, address the health care the needs of people. Yeah. Because for me, healthcare, um, healthcare reform starts with agriculture and food reform. It doesn't start with who's paying for it. Yeah, and I think, well, you can, um, you know, if you're in a capitated system, right, um, it makes sense to start thinking about diet and health. If you're in a capitated system where people are covered for life, as they are in some of the national health plans, then it makes sense to kind of start tackling diet and healthy eating and obesity in childhood. When you're in the kind of system we have, and we've gone more and more to with this kind of, this business logic of, you know, shop around every year for a better plan. If you think about it from the insurer's point of view, there's no incentive to keep, to, to develop healthy habits because you know, the person is likely to go someplace else the next year. So I think one of the fallacies and one of the huge problems that you're pointing to when you um, look at a profit-driven uh, health system is look at obesity in the U.S. You know, it's a huge, you know, you go to hospital, my, one of my, my, my um, weirdest trips was going to Little Rock, Arkansas, where the hospitals were like, number one U.S. news in bariatric surgery, right? But there's no incentive to develop those healthy eating habits or exercise that might prevent people from needing bariatric surgery, but there's tons of money in, at the end point. So, you know, yes, you could, you could argue that um, uh, that's an argument for going to a, more of a national health system or a capitated health system where you're in a program for life, so the same people are paying if you don't, but but you're right, you know, it starts with habits and the young, and we're in this moment now where we're afraid that even CHIP is not going to be reauthorized, but we need a lot, you know, there's a wonderful book called The American Healthcare Paradox about how we pay so much for healthcare because we think of healthcare as isolated from things like social services, agriculture, um, housing and it's really part of the part and parcel of the same. So yeah, I don't know, you know. I just think like no matter what we, no matter who's paying, yeah. the, the, like, no plan intended, but the weight of the unhealthy hazards is going to crush no matter what the system is. So. And you know what the system does well from from people 
having unhealthy habits, right? You know, look at look at TV. What are the drug ads for? Genuvia, you know, they're for type two diabetes. The the bariatric surgery is a boom for all hospitals. So there's the problem. You know, if you trust in the profit motive to do the right thing for health, it won't it won't deliver at all in this in, in the, the areas that are that we all know in this room are important. And my second question is, um, have you ever thought about doing something on the business of medical education, certification, and licensing? Um, yeah, I've thought about it, but um, I, I'm kind of doing one step at a time. <laughs> um, clearly, you know, uh, medical education, I, I mean, I, I laughed that when I was entered medical school in the, the, the mid-80s, there was the new pathway, which is supposedly going to change the way doctors thought about medicine. Um, but I think it, it, it needs to be more holistic, and uh, some places have moved in that direction. And I think students want it, because I think um, one of the, what I see as the hopeful um, aspects of things today is people who are going into medicine now, you're not going into it because you know it's, it's, you know, it's gonna be a world of big money and big specialties. It's a very uncertain time. And I think everyone's going to be employed. I know lots of, you know, um, unemployed journalists. I don't know any unemployed physicians. Um, but I think people who go into it now go into it, I hope, because they want to do what doctors traditionally do, which is taking care of patients and doing, you know, improving health of individuals or communities. So I hope that will shift the profession, too. Oh, sorry. So maybe I wanted to ask one last question for us for the night. Um, and that is, I'd like to kind of reflect on the stories that populate your book. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know how you were able to find the people who told you their stories. And in the process of them being able to tell you the stories that they're going through, how did, what did you witness as the effect that had on them to be able to, to tell you those stories? Yeah, I mean, um, I think in healthcare, I mean, storytelling to me is, is very powerful, and people often say to me, oh, you know, it's so weird, you went from being an ER doctor to a, to a journalist, that's really different, How you know? And I always say, the best training I got for journalism was my second year clerkship in med school that was run by a guy at Cambridge City Hospital named Charles Hayden, who taught us endlessly about listening, uh, hearing what a patient was saying, not interject, you know, kind of how to put together, what you do in an ER is what you do in, in, in journalism. You, you listen to a person's story, you let them talk, hopefully if you have more than, you know, six minutes, and you um, try and put it together into a meaningful narrative. So I think there's incredible overlap between writing and medicine, and um, for the patients in the book, these were all people who who contacted me through social media. I, I you know, some was through the Times. I, when I left the Times, I started a face, Facebook group, not a page, because I don't do Facebook as a per, you know, individually, called the Pain Till It Hurts Facebook group. Um, anyone here can join. There are 9,000 people, and they share stories. And in sharing stories, and this is, um, first of all, they feel a little bit empowered, you know, they didn't solve their problem, every last one, but in this group, um, many people respond to stories saying, 
yeah, that happened to my sister too, and this is how I solved it. So I think part of what I see this kind of storytelling doing as, um, and why it was important to a lot of these patients is it, you know, my ultimate goal is to kind of create a patient community and a patient movement that says, you know, this is what we deserve and this is what we want in medicine and this is what's happening to us and we're going to vote that way too. So I, you know, I'm a little bit of an idealist, but um, often as a journalist, you know, I was talking to people about sensitive things and, you know, they were like, I want my name used, I want my, you know, I want everything out there because part of the way we got to this crazy health system is that patients were silent as this happened as long as they could solve their own individual problem with a check or, you know, negotiation, they, they didn't make it part of something larger. And I think physicians too, who were unhappy, they felt like they solved their individual patients' problems, um, but didn't, I, I think it's, and they have coalesced in certain groups, you know, Physicians for a National Health Plan, and, and that's been powerful, but I think that those kind of things should grow because we can all be distressed about the system individually, but um, that won't change things. So um, I hope everyone will do what they can and make it larger, <laughs> you know, make, make this, the, uh, put pressure on the system to change. So. You know, we often think about uh, illness uh, as being the sole cause of suffering, but we realize that the healthcare system itself, if it's broken, uh, can create or perpetuate that suffering that we see in our patients. Well, and I think a lot of what I hear patients complain about now, I mean, you accept illness as inevitable, right? You, you, that, that is just something that happened. But the idea that in this state of illness, people have this anxiety about not just what it will cost, I mean, that's certainly part of it, but the kind of hoops of, I'm calling my insurer, I'm trying to figure out if this doctor is in my network, you know, will it pay for this drug versus that drug? It's an incredible burden to put on both patients and physicians while they're, they should be focusing on their health. Absolutely. So. We have folks available in the back, um, and I'm sure Dr. Rosenthal will stick around to sign those for you. Um, but I just want to thank you again for your amazing reporting and being an advocate for healthcare in America. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Um,